This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Welcome to Rex Factor! This week, Isabella of France Review. With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hood. Hello. Hello. And welcome to Rex Factor reviewing all the Queen and Prince Consorts of England from Elswith to Prince Philip. And today we are reviewing Isabella of France, Queen Consort of Edward II. Last time we did her biography episode, so today we're going to review her and decide whether or not she deserves the Rex Factor. Yeah, and I'm sure everyone is terrifically excited about this. Uh, if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram, where we are at Rex Factor Pod. Like the Rex Factor Podcast Facebook page and email us at rexfactorpodcast at hotmail.com. And we're a free podcast, but if you'd like to hear more of us, then you can donate monthly, join the Privy Council, and get lots of uh, bonus content and episodes by going to www.patreon.com forward slash Rex Factor. Yeah. Now, before we review Isabella, we're just going to have a quick recap on her life story. Biography! Uh, so, Isabella of France was born in 1295, the daughter of two monarchs, Philip IV of France and Joan I of Navarre. She married Edward II uh, of England in 1308, and this was very much a marriage of ups and downs. Uh, it got off to a bad start when Edward was showing undue favour to his possible lover, Piers Gaveston. Uh, but following an intervention from her father, Isabella was then treated with greater respect and seems to have accepted Gaveston. Uh, The nobles of England, however, did not. Uh, So in 1313, Gaveston was murdered by the Earl of Lancaster, who is Isabella's half-uncle and the most powerful noble in the land. Uh, Isabella supported Edward in the ensuing struggle and grew much closer to him in the process. But after Lancaster's defeat and death in 1321, Edward's new favourite, Hugh Dispenser the Younger, worked to ostracise Isabella, resulting in the breakdown of her relationship with Edward. Uh, She's sent to secure a truce with France in 1325, and she becomes a beacon for those who are opposed to this uh, dispenser regime, and she launches an invasion of England in 1326, supported by uh, Roger Mortimer, possibly her lover. Uh, She deposes, if not murders, Edward II and replaces him as king with her son, Edward III. Uh, And because he's young when he becomes king, for a time Isabella and Mortimer rule the country as pseudo-regents, but they unfortunately prove rather unpopular and end up being overthrown by Edward III, who executes Mortimer. Uh, But Isabella largely becomes a very conventional queen mother after this, and she's still involved in Anglo-French diplomacy uh, and a regular face at court until her death in 1358 at the age of 63. Wow, I can see why that was a whole episode. (laughs) But how will she do when we review her? Battleliness! So for battleliness with the consorts, we're looking for agency, independence of action, some fighting spirit. As a bonus, uh, any involvement in military affairs is obviously a big plus. And I think it's fair to say Isabella somewhat delivers on all of that. Yeah, and in spades. But what about the military bit? Any any militaryness? Uh, well, I mean, we will get to the thing that obviously everybody's thinking of, which is when she invades England. Oh, which is quite quite military. That's... Oh yeah, as these things go. God, I didn't even that, that was that's so, so so big it bypassed me. <laughs> that wasn't just her coming back. Yeah, so that must have been in, with an army. Yes. Wow. This is going to be really good, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Uh, So that's the biggie, which obviously everybody apart from you has been expecting we're going to talk about. Um, But she shows some fighting spirit before relations with uh, Edward began to sour. Uh, She accompanied him on his campaigns against Scotland uh, and on two occasions was forced to make dramatic escapes 
uh, to avoid capture. So she does end up rather in the firing line, perhaps more Edward's fault rather than because she was trying to be on the firing line. But still, she's there and has to escape. Uh, In 1321, she played a supporting role in Edward's conflict against the nobles in what was known as the Dispenser Wars. So Edward was looking for a casus belli uh, against his enemies, and Isabella helped provide it for him at Elise Castle when when she deliberately requested entry to the castle, knowing that it was owned by a rebel baron. So ostensibly, she needed somewhere to stay whilst on pilgrimage to Canterbury, but in reality, it was probably to provoke a conflict. What was that cheeky bit of Latin? Casus belli. Yeah. Uh, it's a just cause for war. <laughs> Definitely th- thought it was, um, it sounded like an Italian restaurant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The belly house. The best yeah. pizzas in town. Uh, so Isabella knocks on the door and says, I demand you let me in, I'm the queen. They say no. Isabella tells her men to force their way in. Uh, and the uh, castle fires, opens fire. Six of her men are killed in the process. I can't believe they did that. Yeah. I mean, even though they knew that she was looking for a big fat belly, Mm. um, they knew that she was looking for a big fat belly and shouldn't have fallen for the trap. Yeah. It was a bad move uh, because it gives Edward an excuse to take the strategically important castle. It brings moderate nobles onto Edward's side because of the dishonour shown against Isabella. So if it had been against him or if it had been against the dispensers, people might not have cared. But because it's against the Queen, um, people think, oh, this this is taking it too far. Yeah. Edward does very well in this war. He enforces the surrender of uh, Roger Mortimer and various other nobles that are against him and then pushes north. Whilst uh, he goes north, Isabella is given custody of the Tower of London and indeed the Mm. Great Seal of the Kingdom. And from there, she orders provisions to be sent to York and Carlisle castles, sends messages to the sheriffs uh, in the north to come south to prevent the Earl of Lancaster escaping to Scotland. And as a result of this, they do indeed cut him off uh, and he is outnumbered and uh, defeated in battle. All right. Lancaster no more, yeah. Indeed. Her uncle. Yes. Uh, However, the main success for Isabella uh, in battlingness was her invasion of England in 1326, um, which, as you've now realised, is quite a military uh, cup of tea. It's a very, it's a very punchy cup of tea. Mm. Um, it, it should, can we call this a French invasion? Um, no, not really, because technically she gets her troops and ships from Hainaut. So it's sort of a Dutch invasion, led by a French woman. Yeah, that means, okay, it's multinational. Yeah. Coalition, um, but so why why isn't this bigger? Because it was done by a queen. If that were a a man, that would have been a a successful invasion. I mean, it was a successful invasion, <laughs> but it would have been lauded as so. Or am I just not reading the right books? Or why have I forgotten about this? What basically? What, what yeah. happened that meant that I didn't clock that this is a <laughs> thing that happened? Can we blame um, TV production companies for not putting this into my brain? Well, yes, we can do that. We have not seen enough of this. Um, a lot of the early work was diplomatic, so securing the uh, support of disaffected English nobles, both those who are in Paris but also those who are still in England. Uh, she takes advantage of the fact that she's got security by being based at her brother Charles IV's court in Paris. Mm. So she's not reachable by Edward at this point. Uh, and she acquires an army uh, through a marriage alliance with uh, the Count of Hainaut. Uh, she also contacted Scotland and Robert the Bruce, and uh, the Scots agree not to cause any trouble while she's invading. Why not? That would be ideal. Well, because they think, oh, this is good, she'll get rid of Edward. And presumably she makes some kind of promise to them about her future policy towards Scotland. Oh man, I'd have I'd have definitely said, can you go and cause a load of trouble so that he has to send some troops up there? Well, no, the issue is that I guess that Isabella would have to go and send some troops up there. Or oh. indeed, if, if the Scots invade, then nobles who might support Isabella will be like, well, we can't focus on that. We've got to deal with the Scots. Yes, okay. Good, so it's all set. <laughs> yeah. It's good that Isabella was in charge of the diplomacy on this one, I think. <laughs> She's definitely, yeah. yeah she's... Uh, so with all this support behind her, it might be surprising that the actual invasion force was rather small, probably only numbered something like one and a half thousand soldiers. Oh, that's probably why I haven't heard of it, because it wasn't a massive ship crossing. Hmm. But counterintuitively, this is reflective of how strong Isabella's position was. 
Oh, yeah. Because Edward realises yeah. this. So when he hears that she's landed with such a small force, he declares, Alas, alas, we be all betrayed. For certain with so little power she had never come to land, but folk of this country have to her consented. Yeah. It's almost showing off, isn't it? So Edward ordered a force of 2,000 soldiers to go to intercept her at Orwell, but only 55 actually went. Oh, they landed at Orwell, didn't they? Mm-hmm. I mean, this, I should have heard of this. <laughs> yeah. That's, I feel like that's a bit like my manor, that one. Mm. That's my area. Why haven't I seen a, 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 a laminated board? Should be a plaque floating somewhere. Yeah. Uh, so Edward's support in the country quickly melts away, partly due to his unpopularity, but also uh, thanks to Isabella's mastery uh, in manipulating public opinion. In Paris, she declared she would wear the black mourning robes of a widow until the dispensers... Uh, had been expelled. And that's exactly what she did, not just in France, but as she progressed through England. She's on horseback, in black, you know, with the veil over her eyes. So she simultaneously manages to lead a coup against her husband and gain universal sympathy as the wronged wife. Wow. Gosh, she's clever stick, isn't she? And she cemented her victory in the propaganda war by issuing a proclamation declaring that the church and country was much tarnished and degraded by the bad advice and conspiracy of Hugh Dispenser. And she pledged that she would safeguard and maintain so far as we can the honour and profit of the Holy Church and of our said Lord the King and the whole kingdom and called on the people of England to come to our help well and loyally whenever the time and place are right and by whatever means lie within your power. And the final stroke of PR genius is that she fixes uh, the original of this proclamation onto the Eleanor Cross at Cheapside, a highly symbolic site for queenship, and shows that she's effectively claiming the inheritance of Edward I and Eleanor of Castile. Oh, right. Yeah, of course, Edward's first wife. And so... Edward II's mother. Oh, yeah. So she's sort of doing it in, in official channel. She's saying, look, this is all, this is absolutely legitimate. Yeah. She's good. Did she invent? Who invented PR then? Was she the? Is she before? Uh, that was William the Third, um, four hundred years later. Oh, so she invented PR. One of many. Okay. Most importantly, of course, with the invasion, uh, it was successful. Yeah. Good. Edward abandoned London, town after town, welcomes Isabella without resistance. The elder Hugh Dispenser was successfully besieged at Bristol Castle, uh, and then Edward II and Hugh Dispenser the Younger are captured. This is the first successful invasion of England since 1066, as well as the first time a sovereign had been deposed since 1066. Well, yeah, this is, this is huge. I don't understand why this... Because that's a fact that is often banded about, that England hasn't been successfully invaded... For a, a nearly a thousand years. Mm. Nonsense. I guess the, the issue is that it's she's the Queen of England and with her is the next is the son and heir of the King in England. So it goes Edward II, his son and heir. So it's not like another country has come over and changed everything yeah. and right now the Germans are in control, now the French are in control. It's actually yeah. the rightful line of succession. It just happens a bit earlier than Edward II might have expected. Um, Eleanor of Aquitaine was connected with the rebellion against Henry II, but that was unsuccessful. So Isabella is the only queen in English history to dethrone her own husband and to take control of the country in such dramatic fashion. Wow. Oh, good for her. That is brilliant. The final point in her favour on battliness uh, is the Hundred Years' War. Hmm? Uh, so following the death of Isabella's three brothers without male heirs, her son, Edward III, is Philip IV's um, only... Well, actually, she's got two sons, but we'll forget about the younger one. Philip IV's only grandson and his closest uh, living relative after Isabella herself. So when the French throne goes from her last brother to her cousin, Isabella publicly pursues Edward's claim to the French throne. Because by primogeniture, he is closer in line than the than cousin. The, the cousin. Mm. Because, but the cousin's a fella. Cousin is a fella. Then it's tenuous, isn't it? I mean, not that I'm agreeing with it, but it in back in the day that well, they didn't. Salic law hadn't quite been formally instituted at this point. It's kind of now that they try to do it. It was more that there just hadn't been a precedent where the male line extinguishes in that way, but that you do have a grandson via a daughter. It's a good argument. Mm. 
Um, so Isabella is the one that first makes this claim. I imagine you would think that she really instills in Edward III a belief that he has a successful, he has a rightful claim to the French yeah. throne. And he does obviously later go on to make that claim very forcefully. And as such, this inspires some of England's most successful military campaigns with Edward III enjoying some astonishing victories against the French and effectively restoring the old Angevin Empire. Crikey. How, far, how long ago was that Angevin Empire now? Uh, so it all ends with John. So that's what, 1250. So it's 100 years. And it still then goes back to Eleanor. All roads lead to mamas. All goes back to Eleanor, but 100 years war and all of those victories ultimately come because of, uh, because of Isabella. Yeah. She's brilliant. I mean, she's very much like Eleanor. Mm. Any relation? Uh, yes. Yes. I mean, yes is always the answer. <laughs> um, impressive as an invasion and deposition is, however, it's a bit disappointing that there are no actual battles to speak of. Yes. Yeah. So maybe that's why it's not quite in your imagination so much, because apart from besieging Bristol Castle, it's basically a procession ending with Edward's capture, because everybody just mm. opens the door and lets her in. Because everyone hates these dispense a lot. Yeah. I mean, obviously, being so successful you don't actually have to fight is impressive in itself. Mm. But an actual battle would have been good. Yeah, it's it's um, it's being too strong. It's like when uh, aeroplanes start to lose their armaments or bombers lose their armaments because they're you know, useless now. You can go too fast, too high or whatever. Yeah. Be good if it was a bit more fair a fight and you could <laughs> you could do more intricate modeling it's the edgar the peaceable problem yeah 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 true huh but there's also a leadership question battliness um while isabella is undoubtedly the key figurehead some might argue perhaps could roger Mortimer have been more important as the actual leader uh of this whole shebang. He'd been gathering support in Europe two years before Isabella came to France. He laid the groundwork for the Hainault alliance before Isabella formalised arrangements. So is it really his victory in a way rather than Isabella's? No. <laughs> he couldn't have done it without her and she had enough going on that she, she would have known. She could have stopped it. I mean, chose not to. She's just using her allies wisely. And technically, it doesn't really matter, does it? Because um, it makes sense for her to have an experienced soldier who's maybe yeah. making strategic calls, like Quite a general. Right. That's what you'd expect of a king. Not all yeah. kings are great military leaders, but you'd expect them to have people that are. Yeah, yeah exactly. Hmm. Now, once Isabella had control of the levers of power, she didn't provide the martial leadership that the nobles had craved and makes humiliating and unpopular peace treaties with France uh, and Scotland. So with France, much of Gascony uh, is returned to England, but at a cost of 50,000 marks, and they lose the, the territory uh, of the Agenais, which is a region that Edward II had demanded back and was kind of the whole issue with why she was in France in the first place. Mm. And while Isabella claims Edward's right to the French throne in theory, the reality was that she was in no position to take any positive actions and France at this point was still chipping away at England's ambitions in France. So, so, that, so this is putting to bed these unpopular um, treaties with France and Scotland and stuff. It's putting to bed the Edward I who's going to rule Scotland issue. Yeah, so the Scottish one is the one that's particularly unpopular. So border raids resumed in 1328 after the Scots had initially sort of kept out of, uh, kept out of the way. Uh, Morton mm. was unable to force the Scots into open battle and then the Scots raided the English camp and collapsed Edward III's tent on top of him. <laughs> so the Treaty of Edinburgh and Northampton recognised Scottish independence, restored the borders as they were back in the day, so for all Edward II's humiliations against Scots, he'd never abandoned the claim that England had over Scotland. But now Isabella has basically said, yeah, draw a line under that. You win. We lost. Let's move on. I think, though, that's still Edward's fault that she's forced to do that because of his ineptitude. Mm. Yeah, I, I think that's fine. I mean, this is all her doing, isn't it? This mm. is her. She's yeah. being making these sort of kingly decisions. And the final thing against her in battliness is the fact that, having deposed Edward II, Isabella and Mortimer are themselves deposed by Edward III. And obviously, technically, it's her own son and the actual king, 
so you might not see it as a significant military defeat, but it's still worth acknowledging the fact that she lost power against her will. Yeah, I think actually it is significant, isn't it? Because if we're saying that the invasion wasn't a significant military invasion, uh, it was, you know, was actually significant. The the overthrow of that is significant as well. Hmm. I mean, it's really out of the frying pan into the fire for these poor old nobles who go <laughs> from uh, the McKin- McKinley. What was it? The what was the second lot of um, Edward's lovers called? The Dispensers. Dispensers. Who's McKinley? He was. Uh... An American president that was assassinated. Yeah, well, aside, later, mean, exactly as you know that that is relevant later. But in the meantime, the uh, dispensers, and then the Mortimers. So that's a real failing from uh, um, Isabella that she can't recognise that she's committing the same mistake that gained her the support. Possibly, we might find maybe that will be more pertinent for subjectivity. Yeah, that's true. And it's still, even though it is kind of similar to her own invasion, I guess it is still different that Edward III was the king and then effectively his coup was to say, no, I really am the king. Yeah, because her coup was to say that he's the king. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I see what you're saying. Sorry, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's what she ultimately wanted anyway. Mm. So as defeats go, having your beloved son fully in control of government isn't the worst defeat. Yeah, when you say, you but imagine. Edward, I want you to be fully in control. Yes, that's that's what's <laughs> happening here. I just don't want this weird guy in Dad's bed anymore. <laughs> yeah. He's looking at me funny and telling me I can't play tennis. <laughs> uh, well, it's very good, isn't it? Oh, have we got more? No, that's, that, that's, my, yeah, uh, that's my fault. I am looking for reasons not to give her a big old 10. So the highest score we've had thus far was Eleanor of Aquitaine with 19.5. You gave her a 10... I gave her a 9.5, and I gave her a 9.5 because I thought, you know, she has that sort of rebellion against Henry, but it's very unsuccessful. And I was thinking there definitely is a way that it could be better than what Eleanor managed, Mm. and I was thinking of Isabella. If you were to take a 0.5 off, it would be for the very end where she takes her off the ball and Mortimer is the same problem. But I, I feel that's more subjectivity than it's it is, batting, yeah, really. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's just someone speeding up her timetable, actually. Mm. Agency, some... independence of action, that's all there. Actually invading the country, deposing the king, first time since 1066. All right, I'm looking, I'm now looking <laughs> ways ways to give her 10 when I think actually it just is a 10. I think it's got to be a 10. I mean, I can't really expect anything more than that. That's brilliant. 10. That is the first of this series, 20 out of 20 for battleliness. Scandal. I think it's fair to say Isabella's got a pretty decent chance of scoring well here as well. Yeah, I, I've been so focused. I don't know what I've been focused on, not much in particular, but this is all <laughs> scandalous as well, isn't it? Yeah. Do you have your bell? I do, yeah. Yeah, it's been sitting ready. Before we get to some of the big obvious stuff... Um, even though she didn't give Edward II or his chroniclers any initial cause uh, for concern on the scandalous front, she did play a central role in one of the most notorious scandals of the age, the Tour de Nail affair. This was in France. Uh, so in 1313, Edward and Isabella went to France for chivalric celebrations with the knighting of Isabella's three brothers. Uh, and her brothers are all married to daughters of the Duke of Burgundy. Uh, Now, after watching a satirical puppet show, uh, Isabella gave two of her sisters-in-law embroidered purses, but later that year, back in England, she noticed two Norman knights carrying the purses that she had given as gifts. Uh, So she's a bit suspicious, and when she returns to uh, France in 1314 as part of another diplomatic mission, she tells her father of her concerns, and after secret investigations, all three of her sisters-in-law are arrested on charges of adultery thrown into the uh, dungeon at Chateau Gaillard and two of them are actually found guilty. Oh, we did this, didn't we, on the Chateau Gaillard one? The scandal rocks France, seriously affected the standing of women at the court, while in one fell swoop the marriages of all three of her brothers were either undone or undermined in the public eye. Um, so, you know, if you're being conspiracy theorist about this, is it too far-fetched to suggest that in- Isabella's got her eye in the French throne? Because obviously at that point, Edward III is the only heir for Philip IV because she's wiped out the three marriages of her brothers. Oh. I wouldn't put it past her. Now, against this, obviously you'd point out to the fact that they're all very young and they could just marry somebody else. 
and have more children. Yeah, but it, it's nice a nice bit of um, grey area that she's building in there. She's not one who is above a little plotting. Yeah. Uh, much more direct, of course, is that Isabella led an invasion of England against her husband, the king, and had him overthrown. Now, we won't go into all the details again, but there was a bit of added spice to some of the alliances that she created, because the Count of Hainaut, who provided all of the ships and the troops, was actually at odds with Edward II at mm. this point. But that was nothing to the fact that Isabella made overtures to Robert the Bruce and probably offered to recognise Scottish independence in return for Scotland giving her a free run during the invasion. Mm. So prior to uh, Isabella, Robert the Bruce very much the bête noire of Edward's entire yeah. reign. Now he's got his wife to contend with as well, and <laughs> he, she's making a pact yeah. with him. The real spice, however, with all of this, is that she was in close alliance with her husband's most notorious English enemy, Roger Mortimer. So he, as we said, had been captured in those dispenser wars in 1321, but he then escaped from the Tower of London and has spent the next few years plotting to murder Edward and the dispensers. Mm. Not only does she ally with his enemy... But she almost certainly has an affair with him. Now, was he um, too devilishly good-looking to put down? Or do you think this was a bit of a needle as well? I mean, probably a bit of both. Well, I mean, I'm sure there's a bit of frisson that it is as forbidden as it could possibly have been. The fact that he's an enemy, the fact that they're both sort of at odds. They've obviously got a common cause against Edward and the Dispensers. Um, They're of a similar age... Um, Ian Mortimer's described it as one of the great romances in the Middle Ages. He is a sort of successful and daring soldier. Isabella is beautiful, intelligent, and is presenting this chivalric allure dressed in her widow's garbs. Uh, and they share a love of Arthurian romances, and it almost feels like they're playing out the Guinevere Lancelot legend. Yeah, he's got the leading man in a Hollywood film thing wrapped up. Um, there's some st- historians have suggested that they were actually having an affair even before all of this, earlier in the 1320s. And some even suggest Isabella might have had a hand in helping him to escape from the Tower of London, but there's no actual evidence for this, and it's thought most likely that it is when he comes to Paris in 1325 that they get introduced Mm. and form a close alliance. Mm. Now, a queen committing adultery is about as scandalous as it can get, really. And obviously, Isabella has seen the consequences, what with the Tordanelle affair and what happened to her oh, sisters-in-law. Yeah. And it could have completely undermined her cause. Remember that she's posing as the uh, the poor queen, the wronged woman, etc., etc. Um, and then if she's now seen to be having an affair with this notorious exile, that could blow the whole thing. Crikey. What's she thinking? And it does seem that discovery of the affair was the reason why some of Isabella's household actually chose to return to England from Paris in 1326. So they were obviously irked by it, but otherwise they must have been sufficiently discreet because they don't face any public censure. And chroniclers only really hint at it with comments such as, Mortimer secretly came first in the private household of the Queen. But this had been of little comfort to Edward II, who does seem to have uh, been aware, and he is not so reticent in a letter that he sends to his son. She openly, notoriously attached to herself the Mortimer, our traitor and mortal foe, and she accompanies him in the house and abroad. Oh, good Lord. Now, as a, an extra bit of free song, by 1330, so this is just before the, uh, the fall of their regime, that rumours circulate that Isabella was pregnant with Mortimer's child. Mm. And with Mortimer holding himself in an increasingly regal <laughs> fashion... This could have represented quite a threat to Edward, because you think if, if Mortimer's thinking, you know what, I might as well just keep on being in charge. Oh, yeah. And have a... Has a child by Isabella, who's the Queen of France and the Queen of England. He might think, well, you know, I've got myself a bit of a dynasty going mm. on here. Yeah. What happens? Well, there's no evidence for a child being born, so if there was any truth in it, the child was either given away at birth or didn't survive to term. Yeah, that can't be true. I think it's based on the fact that there were contemporary rumours and that she has an unusually long stay at Kenilworth at one point. I'm really sorry. I've, woke, I've woken up in a peculiar mood. Everything sounds like innuendo. <laughs> <laughs> what was the innuendo yeah, there? Well, the rumours abounded because she had a particularly long stay at Kenilworth, if you know what I mean. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Well, that, I'm going to use it now. Looks like okay. she's having... She's, <laughs> Yeah, it's like someone's uh, about to go off for a long stay at Kenilworth. <laughs> so, 
Not only did Isabella ally with two of England's enemies, not only did she ally with Edward's most notorious enemy and take him as her lover, not only did she invade the country and depose her husband, but she potentially commits regicide. She is doing everything she can for this score. If if you start Mm. saying it was on the way to a nunnery, I'm going to burst. (laughs) So after three attempts to rescue Edward from captivity had been discovered, it probably seems likely at this point they thought it's too risky to let him keep on living. So initially it was simply stated that he had died conveniently of natural causes, but by 1330 it's been stated on record that he'd been murdered at Barclay Castle. Most accounts of his murder state that he'd been strangled or suffocated, but over time, the rather gruesome detail is added that he'd been killed by the insertion of a red-hot poker into an area where one would rather not receive a red-hot mm. poker. Although, to be fair, that's pretty much everywhere. <laughs> but. He died by red-hot poker. Do you need to know where? Not really. Um, <laughs> wow. Gross. Now, against her, um, again, we have to ask, was Isabella's invasion truly a sort of Machiavellian master plan. So Helen Castor suggested, well, she states that Isabella had been waiting for her chance and it's with the connivance of her brother that she finds an excuse first to get herself and then to get her son out of the country so that she's then able to make that invasion and overthrow Edward. But probably more likely that it's all sort of, to quote the Simpsons, just a bunch of stuff that happened. (laughs) Yeah. Um, The idea of sending Edward III to pay homage uh, in place of Edward II had actually been mooted by the English originally before Isabella ever went to France. Mm. So if this was all a French master plan to get Edward III to the country, then it's something that actually Edward II would have just suggested himself anyway. Right, yeah. Um, And Isabella's correspondence suggests that she really was trying to secure peace with France in 1325 and that she was expecting and possibly hoping that Edward II would have come in person to join her to perform homage. And obviously, if he had gone in person, everything would have been very different. He wouldn't have met more Because then he would have been in France with her. She would presumably have come back with him. She may have been able to say to him, look, while I've got you, let's really have a proper chat about this dispenser lot. Yeah. Yeah. And... uh... Sort it all out. And obviously she still does the invasion and the coup, but I guess it's maybe that the plotting is maybe a bit more reactive than that she's sitting at home years later, years earlier going, <laughs> Yeah, that's all right, though. You know, because um, plans change as soon as you implement them and all that. She's got to be flexible. I think it should have done much worse if it was one of those cases of sitting back on her own in prison for years planning a... Like a, like a uh, Bane-style thing where everything is planned to the opening of a door at the exact right yeah. time, blah, blah, blah. This is just actually how things unfold. Another big question is whether she's really guilty of regicide. So many historians think it's more likely that Mortimer uh, is responsible for this. So the two men who were later blamed for Edward's murder were associates of Mortimer. And interestingly, Isabella made a request after Edward's death to meet with his embalmer, which perhaps suggests that she's got some concerns about what happened to him, that maybe she wants to know, did he really die of natural causes or could it have been foul play, which sort of suggests that perhaps she didn't know what had happened. Excuse me, sir. Let me see the royal bottom. <laughs> uh, yeah, that, but I can't believe she'd, Mortimer could have done it without her knowing. Or, or, or were relationships really not that close in those days? Well, I mean, I think it's just the fact that, you know, he it's his men that have got Edward in custody, so he doesn't... It's quite easy for him just to say, you chaps, yeah. Yeah. hop over, guard knows what, what's going on, just, you know... Doing one, yeah. Deal with it. Of course, if even it was Mortimer, you can still argue, it's similar to Richard III, when people say about if the prince is in the tower, if he didn't make the order, you've still got the argument that it's under her watch, yeah. and it's under her regime... So there's an element of responsibility there, even if she doesn't actually give exactly. the order. I'm, I'm still, I haven't heard anything that, well, maybe the embalmer. There are also historians who speculate that Edward II didn't die at all and that he actually escaped Nonsense. captivity and survived, meaning Isabella couldn't have committed regicide because he wasn't dead. Nonsense. Yes, there is some, there is evidence. There's definitely enough for it to be a point of debate. Though you could argue that if he is escaping an attempted regicide, even if he wasn't killed... Isabella would still be guilty of attempted murder of her husband, the king. Yeah. Even if he did get away. 
I mean, she's she's whatever happened. He's he's dead in in public, and that's scandal. Um, well, that's got to be ten. Yeah, I mean, we've got overthrowing a husband, an invasion, allying with his enemies, taking a lover, who is another one of his enemies. It's brilliant. She can't. Well, she could, but unlikely that she would have the whole sex with none things. And if she did, clearly that would just be absolutely off the scale. <laughs> Failing that, she has topped every category. It's a big, fat belly 10. It's a 10 for me as well. That's 20 out of 20 for Scandal. And I think that this is the first time ever that we've had two 20s for one person. Yeah, really? So she's currently 40 out of 40. Anyway, that is all looking pretty impressive thus far. We'll see if she can keep that going with subjectivity after a short break. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Subjectivity. Now, this might be a less obvious source of strength for Isabella, but before everything goes south, um, she was a very conventional and effective consort. Yeah. She collected more than 30 volumes of books with a mix of religious works, romances, particularly Arthurian legends, collected uh, painted panels of Lombard works, employed a minstrel called Walter. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's not funny, the name Walter. I'm, I don't know why that's funny. And yet I uh, knew to leave it in. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess this is all part of her her understanding of queenship, isn't it? She mm. would see this as integral part of being a good queen. Yeah, uh, she loves luxury items like jewellery, fine clothing and wine, but she also grows increasingly pious in later ages. She goes on uh, numerous pilgrimages and she does, like many queens before her, enjoy collecting relics. Yeah. Most notable in her collection is a ring, uh, a ring belonging to a much-loved English saint and archbishop. No. Really? Dunstan. I mean, that's possible, isn't it? But I just thought you'd like the image of the fact that when she's doing all of this cool stuff, she is potentially going around with uh, Dunstan's ring. Dunstan's ring and a minstrel dressed all in black <laughs> uh, on that, like, some sort of death metal fan, and the minstrel's got an electrified lute playing War Pigs by Black Sabbath. <laughs> That wasn't where I was expecting this to go when I said Dunstan, but nevertheless. <laughs> uh, as Queen, Isabella was noted for her kindness. In 1312, she arranged for a young Scottish orphan to be fed and clothed and later had him brought to London for his education. While in 1314, she bought clothes for three knights who'd lost everything after fleeing the Battle of Bannockburn. Oh, that's good of her. Uh, as Queen Dowager, she was very active in charitable work. She maintained a number of poor scholars at Oxford and distributed alms to paupers throughout the year. Uh, and after the capture of Edward II, she apparently continued to send him clothes and gifts and was said to have wanted to uh, go and visit him, but was prevented by doing so by some of the bishops who feared for her safety. Yeah, that was a, hmm, that's surprising. Being cynical, you might wonder whether she just made a show of wanting to go and visit him and send gifts so that she could maintain the fiction of being a good wife while she was actually overthrowing him and taking a lover. Yeah, that's more likely, isn't it? And more, more sort of... In her wheelhouse. Yeah. <laughs> um, although things didn't get off to a good start when she first came to England, Isabella does prove uh, an effective queen once she uh, develops a better relationship with Edward. Um, she has particular success as a peacemaker between Edward and the nobles. In 1313 and 1318, she publicly interceded uh, to avoid conflict between Edward and uh, the Earl of Lancaster. And in 1321, the Annals of St Paul's described how she helped to convince Edward to exile the dispensers to prevent another civil war. Even the Lady Isabella, Queen of England, bowing on her knee, interceded for the common people, telling the king about the petitions of the lords and barons. Yeah, she sounds like an all-round good egg. Hmm. She didn't have to do this, or rather the king didn't have to trust her to have anything to do with diplomacy. Hmm. And Eleanor of Provence, and particularly Eleanor of Castile, really didn't show any interest in this sort of intercession. They were very much just, you know, whatever the king does, who cares? So Isabella is more of a peacemaker than some of her immediate predecessors. Yeah. Obviously, yeah. up until the point that she invades. <laughs> uh, much less common for English queens is a significant role in international 
diplomacy, but as the daughter and then sister of the kings of France, Isabella can play this sort of informal role, utilising her personal connections in a way that's not open to any of the nobles or the bishops. Yeah. Yeah, she's well connected. Mm. Uh, she goes to Paris in 1314 on her own, and then with Edward in 1320, uh, where she helps to suppress problems in the town of Abbeville in Pontieu, where she's a countess. Uh, so she helps to negotiate the city's return after her brother had taken control of it. Uh, she also did negotiate terms with France in 1325 um, that did you know, bring out a peace treaty. Edward doesn't like the terms, but he does agree to them. And the fact that he sends her at all when she was very much on the fringes of court at this time indicates how she really does um, act as a diplomatic asset in Anglo-French yeah. relations. Yeah, yeah. She is, I mean, it's not just her connections. It? She could still be a puppet mm. and someone go out there with her and say, the Queen thinks this, this, this. Mm. She's, her intelligence is recognised. Yeah. And this continued as Queen Dowager. So after the Black Prince uh, captured, so this is the eldest son of Edward III, so her grandson. Mm. After the Black Prince captured uh, King Jean II of France in 1356, he spends the next few years as an honoured prisoner uh, in England. And Isabella, of course, as the uh, French woman at the English court, helps to entertain him and his noble household, lends him uh, two copies of Arthurian romances, the Holy Grail and Sir Lancelot, dines with him and acts as a mediator in the negotiations for a peace treaty, in which John ultimately agrees to pay Edward four million crowns for his release and recognises wow. his claims to Isabella's dower counties of Pontieu and Montreuil, as well as Gascony, Guine and uh, Calais. Banging. And of course, for three years, she is in effect the ruler of England. Yeah, really good. I mean, the regency uh, proves unpopular, but it is still remarkable that it happens at all. She has to steer the country through, you know, removing the dispensers, overthrowing Edward II, establishing her son as king, um, which, you know, constitutionally is quite a tricky thing that's not actually been done before. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's not just a... Um, it's trickier than it would be a foreign power mm. in many ways, because you've got you're sort of doing it under the pretense of this all being for everyone's good. It's sort of legal, but it's never happened before. But... Mm. Uh, and she manages that in such a great way, being so totally blasé, mm. you know, nailing it to the right to the Eleanor Cross and everything. And it certainly shows the full extent that we've seen before, even with the Saxons, of how powerful queens can be in their role as queen mothers. Yeah. Um, and also her most unpopular policy in battleliness that we mentioned, which destroys her popularity as regent overnight, was really in the country's best interest with the uh, peace treaty with Scotland. Um, mm. It is a very sensible policy. As much as the nobles hate it, the war in Scotland really can't be won now for England. The military situation has deteriorated um, so far. England doesn't have the money to keep on fighting indefinitely. Isabella's approach is very pragmatic. She thinks it's a futile war. Can't afford to be fighting and getting invaded in the north all the time. Independence, off you go. Done. Yeah. Uh, definitely the right decision. It was just, I think, people getting... Wanting some adventure. Certainly her son. Maybe it's a bit like the Crusades, just getting these warring no giving the warring nobles something to do. So this is still good stuff, but uh, there are negatives. And really, if you think about it, she was a bad queen. What? Like if there's one thing you expect that you ask of a queen consort, it would be not to take a lover and overthrow your husband, the king. <laughs> Yeah. That almost goes without saying in terms of the job description. Yeah. Things not to do. Yes. Um, and, you know, Eleanor of Provence and Eleanor of Castile, they stuck by their husbands through everything. They're always absolutely, this is the side that I'm on. Doesn't matter the rightness of the cause against yeah. my husband. She could very easily have been one of those, couldn't she, with her, her pedigree? Um, indeed she was. Yeah, she was right up until the point that Edward just became too ruddy Edward. Mm. However, unfortunately for her, which I think is one where she really does fall down, her record as regent is not impressive. She was notorious oh. for her acquisitiveness uh, once she gained power. So after Edward III's coronation, she awarded herself uh, estates so vast that she was now the greatest landowner uh, in the country. She went on to accumulate a vast personal wealth, most notoriously the £20,000 that the Scots paid uh, for their independence all go straight into uh, Isabella's coffers. Ooh. So, Just resting in the account? So not only do the nobles have to put up with this peace treaty, which they really, really hate, but the financial compensation for it has all just gone to her. Yeah. I mean, she's doing other stuff, though. She's sorting the country out. That's a little... Just put that in my back pocket, 
I've got expenses. And this is the thing, her sort of sense of entitlement as a princess, as queen, etc., etc., was a key to, I guess, her, her, you know, having the motivation to break with Edward II. But once in power, it obviously brings out a less good side. And for many people, they thought, well, this is just as bad as it was under Edward and the dispensers. Yeah, that's that's her biggest fault, I think, on subjectivity, that she just turned, saved the country from a problem and just did exactly the same thing. Mm. Uh, although the invasion was largely a bloodless coup, it did see some serious unrest break out in the country, particularly in London, where the Bishop of Exeter was dragged from his horse, taken to Cheapside and had his head hacked off with a bread knife. Why? What's he been up to? Well, he was part of the Dispenser clan. Well, not the family, but he was part of that regime. Very high up, very prominent. Uh, She sponsored a statute uh, once everything had been sorted out and she was actually in control to address endemic lawlessness in the country. But within six months, there were numerous complaints of these not being properly enforced. And there's a sense that Isabella doesn't really fully have control of what's going on. Mm, Right. Of London or the country, did you say? Generally, there's a lot of lawlessness, generally. Mm. Um, and she is not above a bit of brutal violence herself. When Hugh Dispenser the Younger is captured, uh, she planned oh, to have him executed in London for maximum publicity, but he was aware of this and tried to starve himself to death, so she settled for executing him at Hereford instead. So he was roped to four horses and dragged through the town to the castle walls and then hoisted onto a specially made gallows 50 feet high so that everybody can see at the back. Mm. Um, with a fire burning beneath. Why? Stop people climbing up to rescue him? Well, perhaps, and also just to you know, make him a bit more uncomfortable. Um, an executioner scales a ladder, because it's 50 feet high, uh, to hack off his genitals, which he then drops into the fire. Still alive at this point. Uh, before bringing him back down to be drawn and quartered. Right. That's terrifying, isn't it? Many have suggested the castration is because Isabella believed there was some kind of sexual relationship between Hugh and her husband, but certainly quite personal. And finally, you've got to ask what her end game is in all of this. Edward III, as I said, he's 15 uh, when the invasion happened, so although he's not at his majority yet, he's pretty close to it, and yet she and Mortimer are acting as if they're just going to carry on running the country indefinitely. You've got Mortimer acting with regality, raising the question that people did raise is, is he trying to make himself king? And you think, well, what is Isabella doing here? What does she think is going to happen? What's her plan? What's going on here? Is she just completely given over to whatever Mortimer's doing? Is she putting Edward in danger? Ultimately, Edward, her son, is so disenchanted and concerned that he launches a coup against his own mother, which is hardly a ringing endorsement of her record. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So he wasn't, definitely it wasn't informed of any imminent handover. Mm. That is that's tricky, isn't it? And unsurprisingly, she is something of a notorious figure in English history. The contemporary chronicler Geoffrey LeBaker described her as that Haridan, that Virago, that Jezebel. Whilst the uh, Victorian historian of the uh, consorts, Agnes Strickland, wrote, No Queen of England has left so dark a stain on the annals of female royalty as Isabella, the only instance of a Queen of England acting in open and shameless violation of the duties of her high vocation, allying herself with traitors and foreign agitators against her king and husband, and staining her name with the combined crimes of treason, adultery, murder and regicide. I mean, it's all true, it's registered stuff, but, I mean... She's popularly known as the She-Wolf of France, she said mm. in the first episode, it's quite a cool nickname. It's actually a phrase first used by Shakespeare in relation to Henry VI consort, Margaret of Anjou, but an 18th century poem by Thomas Gray uh, attributed it for Isabella, and it's since become her epithet. Oh, yeah, but oh, that's quite cool, isn't it, the She-Wolf? I mean, it is cool. But I would just take away the She, would be a better... The Wolf so, of Like, if I were a king, you wouldn't say the He-Wolf... <laughs> The he-wolf of Hanover. I don't know how much to dock her, how many points to dock her, because I think if without that Regency bit, it'd be a big fat ten. I think this is the problem. If she's overthrown Edward, and then she solves all of the problem, all of the iniquities, all of the sort of tyrannies of the dispensers, she rules well, she brings the nobles back together, and then she hands power over to Edward, and that is the beginning of this golden age that Edward institutes. Mm. Whereas instead... She's just like, this is really awful, the way that these guys are just completely taking all of the money and bullying everybody and running the country really badly to their own ends. 
I want to be the person that's doing all of that stuff. Yeah, yeah. So she kind of just replaces them like for like rather than actually improving matters all that much. I mean, you've got the peace with France and Scotland, etc., but it's not a popular regime. It doesn't seem that much better than what went before. And the fact that her own son has to overthrow her. Yeah. I don't... In, in, in talking up the bad bits, I don't feel much confidence in doing it because I feel like it... We're, <laughs> It's taking away too much. But, uh, like, the bits where she was going... She was bred to be a queen, effectively. Mm. She was... Uh, when she got the chance to actually not just do it as a, as a, a consort, but actually it, as regent, that, as, that, was never, that was never part of the, part of the training. Mm. <laughs> but, on the other hand, her actions do allow for Edward to come in. Technically, just uh, sitting back and letting time take care of itself would ultimately have let Edward back in as well. Yeah. I'm just, I'm, I basically, I want to give her a, a big fat 10, but I, I know <laughs> I can't. So I'm trying to take, uh, tone down the negatives. I think there's, there is like good stuff and it's one of those, I suppose, subjectivity, would you want, would you want her to be your queen? I say, well, suppose yes, in the sense if you could just take what she's got to offer and put her in a sort of conventional position as queen consort they said yes i think she'd be very good she's you know she's cultured she's mm. shows some kindness she's got the diplomacy with france which is good intercedes in the nobles that's all very good but i think you do have to take into account the the actual stuff that happens as well as just the things that she's good for and you know yeah it's not just a manifesto you actually have to have to do it in power it is scandalous to overthrow the king of england and that's why it's really good for battleness and scandal, but it's difficult to then get a good subjectivity score on the basis of why you've got the other two being good. So I think that's where she, to get a good subjectivity score, needed to be a really good regent. You really needed to feel like, yes, this is the dawn of a new era. She solved all those problems. Everything's so much better. And now here comes the the great young Son, king did, to yeah. lead us to the rainbow. Whereas instead you're like, oh, it's still kind of as bad as it was before it's just that now you're making all the money instead of the dispensers is there an argument to say though that we're judging her as a queen consort and the time when she was a queen consort it was good but again if we're judging her as a queen consort she is not meant to commit adultery and regicide yeah that's not so there's points coming off somewhere and we're just (laughs) deciding which which factor it should have come off but to what extent they come off. I am still like maybe an eight. An eight. Yeah. I I don't believe she would have kept the throne from Edward. I think Edward maybe jumped the gun a bit, and he quite liked that. You know, he was prone to a bit of adventure. But what's Mortimer up to? You say what Isabella's doing, but you know what's Mortimer planning? He's going around in tournaments, taking precedence over Edward the Third. He's dressing himself up as King Arthur. Edward has to, Edward writes to the Pope at one point um, with like a secret code for how the Pope knows whether or not Edward is really the author of things that are being done. Yeah, that is bad. That is jolly bad, and that is bad, bad, Mortimer bad. But all the things we credit Isabella for, where we're saying, well, but maybe Mortimer was in charge, maybe Mortimer was doing it, we say, yeah, but Isabella's the one that's actually in, in the lead. <laughs> yeah, so we can't then, when there is some bad stuff, say, oh, but that was all Mortimer. She she was just there thinking, oh, I'm sure it'll be fine. That is possible, though, isn't it? It is possible <laughs> that it was all Isabella good stuff, all him bad stuff. Unlikely. Well, I'll take it down to seven, but I'm not going any further, because I really do like her. And I think that, that, that subjectivity-wise, you would want her as a consort. Yes, she mucked it up as regent, but that was never her. That wasn't the job she applied for. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm quite a bit low, so this is going to be one of our biggest uh, gaps, I think. I think, ultimately, it's not good subjectivity, I think. The, really? um, the overthrowing, the of the chaos that comes, the acquisitiveness, the fact that Edward ultimately has to overthrow her. I yeah, think, when he says it sounds bad when you say it like that. <laughs> I, think, I think that leads me more to the negative side than the positive. So I'm going to uh, go four wow. for subjectivity. Because I, I do agree. I do think that actually, given the right circumstances, she's an excellent queen consort and 
a better king would have been very well served by having her as queen. Yeah. But we have that with kings sometimes, where we think, oh, yeah. Vikings hadn't been there, he could have done all of this stuff. And ultimately, I think it has to be what actually happens, as mm. well as their attributes. Anyway, so that's a 7 from you, a 4 from me, so that's still uh, 11 out of 20 for subjectivity, which is not bad. Yeah, higher than you imagined. Longevity. Uh, so, Isabella is Queen Consort from the 25th of January uh, 1308 to the 25th of January 1327. Exactly 19 years to the day. All right, well done. And she's then also Queen Mother from the 25th of January 1327 to the 27th of November 1358. So 31.83 years. Now you only get half marks for your time as Queen Mother, so that gives her 15.92 years uh, from the Queen Mother period. So add all that together, and she is credited with 34.92 years of queenship, which gives her a score of 16 out of 20. Another good one. Ninth best overall. And ironically, of course, she actually sabotages her own score here because overthrowing Edward robbed her of many years of full queenship. <laughs> yeah, and she's still got 16. <laughs> Dynasty, not the program. Uh, so Isabella has four children with uh, Edward II, all of whom survive Edward. Uh, so that gives her a score of 14 out of 20 which is joint oh. 16th best overall. Gosh, she's doing terrifically well. She is. So Isabella has a total score of 81. Which is surely top. Uh, well, Eleanor of Aquitaine got 81.5. <gasps> no! So oh, I love it when this happens. Half a mark off Eleanor's total score. That's amazing. It's, ah, oh, wow. Uh, now, interestingly, in the combined spreadsheet, so this is English monarchs, Scottish monarchs, and consorts together, so yeah. that's where the longevity and dynasty are measured against all of the series rather than just within the series, so you sometimes get a slightly different score. Uh, in that, she gets a score of 82, which is actually the same as Eleanor of Aquitaine. That's like winning on goal difference. Yeah. <laughs> when you drill down into the data that one level further... Yeah, that's I like that. Both mm. same points, but then wins on away goals or something. Mm. Anyway, that is a, uh, a spectacular score. It's the second highest uh, for the consorts, and it's the joint second highest ever, ironically, with the person that's higher than her in the consort series, but that's all, all the maths. But it's not all about the score. Does she have that certain something, that lasting legacy, the great achievement, the star quality that we call... Rex Factor! Shall we not muck around here? It's definite, isn't it? I really can't think of a, an argument against her here. It's about as Rexy as it can possibly get. Yeah, it's just... It's just Rex Factor. She's got all the heritage for it. Wow. Yeah. Really good. It's amazing. You know, she overthrows her husband, all of this amazing stuff that she does. She rules effectively in her own right for a number of years, admittedly not necessarily terribly well but it's amazing that she does it and it's the fact that she's rejected isn't because she's a woman it's because people think she's ruled badly mm. or she has unpopular policies yeah, yeah so she is accepted as the leader it's brilliant absolutely brilliant and that is two yeses which means isabella has got the rex factor well done isabella that's yeah. the uh, couldn't not indeed that is actually the first uh Rex Factor since Eleanor of Aquitaine. Really? Yeah. Oh, well, I'm, I'm jolly impressed. Correspondence Corner. Anyway, that was the life and consortship of Isabella of France. Let us know uh, what you thought about her. I guess the subjectivity is the interesting one, because I imagine most people would agree that she deserves a Rex Factor, but do you think she deserves a high score for subjectivity or a low score? Yeah. That's where I can imagine the only possible disagreement could come in. Hmm. Uh, if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram, where we are at RexFactorPod. Like the Rex Factor Podcast Facebook page or email RexFactorPodcast at Hotmail.com. And remember to send in your hashtag consort cars for episode images for all of our consorts, and we'd love to see uh, an Isabella of France consort card. Yes. So that's uh, with the widow's veil on a horse with Dunstan's ring and uh, war pigs by Black Sabbath blasting out. On an electrified lute. Uh, yeah, I mean, we've done the heavy lifting for you there. We just need someone with the skill. 
Uh, if you'd like to support the podcast, you can leave a review and subscribe on whatever podcast provider you use uh, and donate monthly to join the Privy Council and get lots of bonus episodes at www.patreon.com forward slash Rex Factor. Uh, and we've got new Privy Councillors to welcome to the fold, or they were new some months ago. L.A. Markey, Becky Love, Malieve Bald, Will Turl, A. Jack, G. Ford, Ashton Adams, Tim and Laura, Charlotte Kirkman, James Lavender, A. Wayhill, Loris R.F., Eamon O'Reilly, Toby Morris, Taylor Kniffer, Brandon Bender, Ditty G.H., Jen Barkley, Lord Montgomery Sideways Butterscotch, <laughs> Joe Freighter, Catherine Price, and Christy Phillips. Well, welcome, one and all. Take your rightful place in the Privy Chamber. And that's Brandon, of course, who we did the um, Ethelred the Ready uh, interview with. Oh, yeah. That kick-started our um, doing interviews thing. Yeah. It's a nice scene part of the Privy Council, as he has uh, been for some time. <laughs> so that's all from us and uh, Isabella of France. We'll be back next time with Philippa of Hainaut, consort to Edward III. Oh, yeah, we Hainaut, that thing, yeah. There it comes in. <laughs> So clever this time. <laughs> See you next time. Cheerio.